Noise Nation. Greetings, Device Nation. You're home for all things metal and plastic, and hopefully along the way bringing you ideas, stories, and interviews to take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your humble facilitator, and I hope you're having a wonderful day. I know I certainly am, and today is super special as we get to hear from one of my favorite surgeons of Russian descent. No, not Gino Malkin. We're talking with the accomplished and amazing Dr. Jonathan Vigdorchik. So here's a true story for you. My real estate goddess wife was looking to procure a rental property, made a full price, 15-day cash close offer on it. To the shock of my wife and the agent on the other side, the owner rejected it for a lower offer. Now, my wife reached out to the other agent and said, what the heck just happened here? And the agent said, I've never seen anything like this as long as I've worked here. We dug deep to find out what transpired, and it turns out we made the offer under my LLC, which is KGB, orthopedics KGB being my initials, and the owner decided unequivocally that there would be none of that Soviet secret police stuff going on in her backyard, not in eastern North Carolina, no way. You know, I tried in vain to salvage this deal. I said, look, these are my initials. This is not representative of the Committee for State Security, which, by the way, went out of business in 1991, if anybody's paying attention. I haven't even been to Moscow, Idaho, and I've only seen that copper cup for a Moscow mule from a distance, but alas, it was not to be. We'll have no such concerns about our guest today as he is not connected with the KGB in any way, but he is intricately connected with the HSS as an MD, and you're going to want to hang around for that as we talk technology, his life story, and his practice. Before we join him, we're going to pick back up on the behavioral influence stairway model we've been discussing as part of our special agent series inspired by the former FBI BSU chief, Dr. Greg Vecchi. And last week, we looked at the landing of the stairway and what gets you to the landing, right? Knocking on doors, making an effort to introduce yourself and your products to people. Well, before we take that first step up the behavioral influence stairway, I want us to take a step back and look at it. I mean, will you look at that? One of my favorite videos by Ed Bassmaster. I mean, look at it. And what I want us all to look at and consider that being the height of the steps before you. Again, quick review, the staircase, next step up is empathy, which then takes us to rapport and trust. And then the last step, landing on influence and behavior change, the sail at the top of the stairway. The height of the stairway, let's call that the pitch, the steepness of the slope. And this is going to vary by product and person, and it's something that you need to consider before you even think about taking that first step. Why? Because there's only so many hours in the day to engage in selling activities to grow your business. So we need wisdom as to what to say no to, as there is no shortage of exciting new things and people to show them to, right? Those no's can be powerful as they can help guide us to yes, this is the right person and this is the right product to start taking steps up with them, right? Now, certain products, and anybody that's done this business for any length of time knows the truth of this statement, certain products have an inherently steep pitch to them. Every step is super high, and you may never climb to the top, right? Orthopedic implants, pacemakers, spinal hardware, each step can be excruciating, and there is a better than even chance that you will never reach the top. So quit and go into real estate rentals, right? Not an option. Well, maybe, just maybe, in new contact scenarios, we don't lead with products that are super steep, high-pitch scenarios, right? Perhaps we lead with something lower, not something metal and plastic, an antimicrobial rinse, an implant agnostic technology, a cool trauma gadget, a shallower pitch product that enhances our ability to summit, avoiding, if at all possible, the exchange that ends in no, 
right? You show something that's high pitch, you get that no, and then now when you see them the next time, that thing's kind of hanging out there, right? Start with something shallower and hopefully through that process, cultivating the personal and relational connections. I've made mistakes in that area, just leading with something super high pitch right off the bat. Took a while falling off the edge of that stairway to get the clue that maybe that's not the right way to do this. People plug into this stairway as well, and they have pitch too. Pitch is individualized as they are. Some customers are most affable, and you can get from zero to friendly exchanges quickly, and others Never. (laughs) And then there's a lot of in-between. It's good to figure this out as quick as you can as spending a lot of time on the nevers, not necessarily a wise decision with your time and resources. I introduced myself to a surgeon once, told him about a cool product I had as I handed him my equally cool card, at least in my mind. He looked at it. There was this pregnant pause and he did something I have never once experienced in my career since. He handed it back to me and said, I will take it when I actually want information from you. It got really awkward. And when I got over myself later, I realized he did me a great favor. He showed me his personal pitch, right? And it was steep. And I was thankful for that information. We need that information. I had a surgeon once who said, look, have all the implants there and a chocolate-covered, custard-filled, crispy cream. I would find out later how important that was before all of my cases, and I will move my million dollars of business directly into your lap. Well, I did what any medical device rep would do in that situation. I said, sir, the hot now light is officially on. Time would go by and I thought, you know, he's probably bored with all that custard filled stuff. Let's go cream filled today just to keep it fresh. He literally opened the box at 6.45 a.m. that morning and said, what is this? I will never forget what happened next. He said, and I quote, get in your car, go back to Krispy Kreme, get the right donut, and then we'll start this case. As crazy as that sounds, as I have gotten older, I appreciate customers like that. Customers that kind of remind me of the ushers with the flashlight at the movie, showing you where the stairway is, showing exactly where you need to walk to get and keep the business, or conversely, the customer that turns the flashlight off while giving you back your business card. The second concept, as we look at the stairway before us, look at it, it's stuck in my head now, is what we're going to call territorial velocity, and I feel so much smarter just saying it. Try it. The speed at which it takes to get from the introduction of a product or yourself to behavioral change. Territorial velocity. So let's create some vivid audio to help explain this. In your mind's eye, draw a 45-degree angle. Now draw right beside it a 10-degree angle. Same ray links. Now, if I had you measure from the top of the 45-degree ray to the lower ray, that distance would be greater than the distance of the 10-degree angle, right? The distance from the top of a tall stairway compared to the distance to the top of a shallow stairway. So for our purposes, this represents time. The steeper the angle, the increase in time. The lower the pitch, the lower the time. So... Let's tie all this up. The lower pitch products, lower commitment threshold can have a higher velocity to them, right? Quicker from introduction to the endpoint of behavior change. And the steeper pitch products can have a much slower velocity to them. Now, we understand that from a product perspective and a personal perspective, but I firmly believe that territories are as individual as people and have unique velocities that we can associate with them. Some just never change. Apart from some black swan event, things are going to remain as they always have. We've always used this product. We've always done things this certain way. Where others are in a constant state of change, embracing new products and technologies, new companies, This is powerful information as you assign quotas, look for growth opportunities in your organization. I've seen great reps with great companies get planted into low-velocity territories and just die. And I've seen great reps with great companies end up with the short stick 
in a high-velocity territory, a victim of the latest thing that they just don't happen to carry. So what's the velocity in the territory before you? That knowledge is priceless as it's going to help guide what, who, and how we plug into the stairway. So let's sum up the view of our stairway real quick before we take that first step up next week. Whether you're a vocalist, musician, or medical device rep, we all want to be pitch perfect, right? And I think that identifying the pitch of our products will help us guide what we lead with, what we show. Being sensitive to the pitch of the people around us, is it worth the climb? Will you ever summit things to consider as we order our day and make decisions on who we're calling on? Lastly, velocity as you strategically analyze your territory. Know the velocity. This is very profound stuff to me. I wish I would have known this years ago in my career as it can really help guide the who, what, and how you target objectives. So fun fact to finish us up here, pitch of products and people and velocity are not connected. I didn't get that at first. I know reps that have great relationships with their customers and they struggle to move new things across the finish line in a timely manner, if at all. And I know surgeons that use products exclusively from reps they barely know and honestly do not like. So these things are not necessarily related. A great relationship is not necessarily going to flatten the pitch of the product you're showing, but we still try, 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 right? And we're thankful for the surgeons and the customers that give us our business card back and present a list of donut demands because at least we know where we stand and I'll take that any day. Well, our next guest, assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. AOA Emerging Leader, AUKUS Program Committee Chair, Rana Watt Fellowship Club, Insaw Fellowship Club. I could go on and on and on. He's a name you need to know and we'll be hearing more and more of in our reconstruction space. So let's give a Bolshoi Device Nation welcome. That translates to big in Russian, by the way, to Dr. Jonathan Vigdorchik. Privyet, welcome to Device Nation. Thanks for having me. Privyet. The pronunciation's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I know just enough Russian to get me in a lot of trouble. You have really hit your stride in the orthopedic reconstruction space as of late, and I am so excited to get to talk to you about augmented reality joint replacement, all things spinopelvic, HSS, hockey. But first, let's go back to where it all began, St. Louis, Missouri. What put you on the path to medicine? You know, my parents are Russian immigrants, and you know, they came from the Ukraine in 1976. And like typical immigrants, you know, either whether they're from India, from Russia, from anywhere, you know, you only have one choice as a kid growing up. You can be a doctor, um, and then you can do whatever else you want in your life. So my dad physically told me, he literally said, Jonathan, you know, he calls me Motya in Russian, but you could be a doctor. And then you can do whatever else you want to do. So that put me on the path. What was that famous line by Henry Ford? The customer can have any color car they want as long as it's black. Exactly. So that's how I started. That's my upbringing. <laughs> you know, I, I played hockey growing up and one of the players on my team, his dad was an orthopedic surgeon. So we were in grade school and we had the opportunity to go to the operating room to watch him do a shoulder scope and a knee scope. And I thought it was awesome. So you know, going even going into college, I designed my whole college curriculum around how to get into medical school. And then once I was in medical school, it was orthopedics until proven otherwise. So that's kind of how it all began. And nothing could dissuade me from going into orthopedics after that. You know, getting to that point, Dean's List, Bright Flight Scholarship, Elliott Scholarship, Ottawa Franck Award, John Insall, Traveling Fellowship. Congratulations on that one. Uh, Frank Stanchfield Award. I could go on and on and on. You basically excelled at everything you put your hand to. What drove you to be the best as, as you went through just all these endeavors as a young man? I think it all just starts with parenting. Another funny story. I was in college, and as part of your pre-med curriculum, you have to take organic chemistry, which is a typical kind of weed-out class. You know, they make it extra hard on purpose so that only 
you know, you start with 200 people at the beginning of the year. And by the end of the year, you only have 50 left because the other ones dropped out. Um, so I came home and these tests are incredibly hard. It's, I got a 49% on one of these tests, except a 49 was actually an A. It was in like the top 5% of the entire class. Wow. Right. So I was happy. I got a 49%. I was ecstatic. I called my parents and said, you're not going to believe it. I took the hardest class in school. I got an A. My dad said, what percentage did you get on the test? I said, 49. He said, out of 50? I said, no, out of 100. He goes, you don't know anything. <laughs> what do you mean? You got a 49. That's terrible. The teacher expected you to know 100%, and you, you knew only 49. So, I mean, now expand that attitude to my entire life to hockey practice, to swim practice, to, you know, I really owe it all to my parents to, to keep feeding me, to keep being better and better and better and not really be satisfied with, you know, a performance medal. Well, speaking of performance medals, I believe that you still hold four varsity swimming records at Washington University. You still get in the pool? Uh, I do just recreationally now for fun to keep in shape. I haven't done any master's programs or anything. That was fun. I mean, you have to be disciplined when you play sports in college because you're up at six in the morning, you know, five thirty in the morning to get to practice for two hours. And then you go to class and then you go back to practice and then it's five or 6 PM. Then you have to do homework. So it really forces you to have time management skills and really get all your ducks in a row. The oldest existing orthopedic hospital in the United States started in Dr. Knight's private residence in the middle of the Civil War. And, of course, we're talking about HSS. Would love to hear about your experience there. My experience at HSS really started in 2012. I came for fellowship. I did my residency in Detroit. It was more of a community program, I would say. Pretty light on the academics, although we were required to do one or two research projects before we graduated, but very community program when I was there. So I felt like I needed to round out my CV to get some sort of intense academic experience. So I think I'd written maybe three or four papers in residency. And for my program, that was a tremendous amount at the time. So Ended up being fortunate enough to be selected for the fellowship class at HSS. And when I got there, I was pretty overwhelmed. I mean, you can imagine that the guys surrounding me were all very, they coming from the top residencies in the country, and now we're all together in a class. You know, I had no idea how to write papers, how to do proper research. Yeah, and it was challenging. I learned a tremendous amount from the guys in my fellowship class who were equal you know, level as I was. I had to learn from them, too, to, to not fall behind and keep up. Do you have any mentors during that time of your career that were helping shape you? I did. I had a mentor in residency, two of them, actually. One who gave me the opportunity to be in that resident class. Um, because, I mean, you mentioned I've, I'm successful in almost everything I've tried to do, but I actually didn't match into orthopedics the first time I tried. Wow. You know, you go through medical school, you try to get all these good grades, you, you try to work as hard as you can, you apply for all these orthopedic residencies, and it's, it's so competitive, I didn't get in. Uh, so I had to take a year and do general surgery you know, with all the prerequisites and then apply again. So fortunately, you know, a program in Detroit, Dr. Ralph Blazier was our program director at the time. Who's now, you know, either retired or practicing up in Escanaba, Michigan, way up in the UP. He, you know, graciously took me into the program as a second year because they had just started the program again, and you know, I told him I wasn't going to let him down. So, so through his guidance, they're always pushing me, and then through one of my other attendings in residency, David Markle, who had done his fellowship at HSS, that really helped shape you know, my career there. I really owe a lot to that residency program. Dr. Vadia was this spine and trauma surgeon. He questioned everything we did. You know, we had another surgeon, Dr. Colin, who you know, he passed away during my residency. And you know, that had a tremendous impact on my life, too, because he would, he would let us operate the most, but he questioned everything we did. He made, he made everything look easy. And then let us struggle and try to figure out how he was doing so easy. So I think a lot of it, every little experience, I mean, now that you're making me look back on it, I mean, it's hard to really pinpoint one thing. I've, I've picked up so many different 
values, I think, from all these guys that I've worked with. Well, fast forward to now. Uh, tell me about your practice. What does it look like these days? What What are you doing? What do you enjoy doing? So practice-wise, I'm a hip and knee replacement surgeon. That's all that I do. Every single case I use some sort of technology, whether it's robots or computer navigation or augmented reality. And that really started from my fellowship. You know, we do x-ray conference after surgery. And I would notice that on one particular rotation where I was doing a bunch of computer navigated stuff, every x-ray looked the same post-op. It was very reproducible. It all looked the same. And it wasn't like we were spending extra time doing it. We weren't you know, dilly-dallying around with technology. We were just getting the cases done very efficiently and every x-ray looked the same. Then you go to some other rotations and, you know, there's some variability. I didn't like that cup position. I didn't like how that hip looked. We were trying, we were literally measuring things with rulers, you know, in 2012, where we all had an iPhone. So it just became crazy to me that how could I not use technology when it's there? It's so easy to use once you learn how. And it just makes you better. So that's kind of framed my mindset. And uh, so every case now done with some sort of technology. And now I just work on the ease of use and the efficiency of it. And that's what I'm motivated by. We've come a long ways from that old orthopedic saying, uh, measure with a micrometer, mark it with a crayon, and then hit it with an axe. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know if we're that far away from that. You know, <laughs> We just finished looking up the utilization of technology across the country and we're not more than 10 percent using technology in joint replacement right so we're still hitting with an axe you know we are definitely better measuring better with the micrometer but uh i think we're moving in the right direction one particular project you just brought up that really scratches my nerd itch is augmented reality. The FDA recently cleared uh, the Medacta platform here in the U.S., and I believe you were the first to do one on the knee replacement side. What does this technology bring to the table? You know, when we're doing these cases, it's always, whether you're using a robot or different technology, it's nice to have a certain amount of information at a certain time. And that's the goal. We want to make sure that we can do the surgery efficiently, and we can do it to the best of our ability. So when you're using the augmented reality part, I'm getting the information I need at the time that I need it. I'm cutting the distal femur. I've got, I'm looking at the distal femur. I'm looking at how it looks with the implant on. I'm looking at live what I'm cutting to make sure we're doing the right thing. So I think you're going to notice over the next five or 10 years that Big robots will become smaller robots. You know, maybe we'll get rid of robots, maybe not. Um, but smaller, more efficient things, easy to use things that everybody can do is where we're headed. And to be honest, yeah, I think about this kind of stuff all the time. Like, why don't other people use technology when I think it's so simple and so easy? There's ways to do it that the companies are just behind in terms of their innovation. You know, they figured it all out by the, by the time we assemble the design team and then we make the product and then we submit it to the FDA and then it gets FDA cleared, you know, three or four or five years goes by. And, you know, it, it, I think we need to be better as an industry in terms of our pace of innovation to really help our patients because, this is where we're heading. It's all We all know we're heading in this direction. I think a lot of this gets back to what you said about in your residency and the surgeons that really made an impact on your life that were questioning everything you're doing. And and I think that's part of technology is, is questioning what you're doing. And then the technology helps to validate what questions you have. You know, how, <laughs> how much slope am I really putting on this tibia? You know, questioning it. That's... It's funny you mentioned that because that's exactly what we're seeing with people who have done conventional surgery for a long time and then introducing technology into their practice. They, you go through this adoption phase where you are questioning the computer now. But in reality, the computer is telling you what's right and you just aren't recognizing it. You know, so there's that validation in your mind of what you used to be doing and then eventually you start trusting the computer more. You know what I mean? Right. You're like, 
the computer says two degrees of slope. And then I'm looking at it and I'm like, no, that's five or six or seven degrees of slope. But in the beginning, you trust yourself and then you get your post-op x-ray and you're like, hmm, maybe the computer was right. And then you do another one and you trust yourself again. And eventually, you know, you learn when to trust the computer and when not to. (laughs) Sometimes it's, you're not quite sure that you had your eye trained as well as you did that whole time, right? (laughs) There's a lot of value to just being able to validate what your eyes are seeing, right? Yeah, and even training your eye. I joke around all the time. When you go on Instagram, you can edit your photos and you can rotate them, you know, to make the horizon level. You kind of get a sense of how good your eye can see level, you know, what you think is level versus the line across the screen. And, you know, we're probably within a degree or maybe a half a degree in certain situations if you can see the whole picture. But it's about training our eye and using the technology to even advance our training. That's one of the worries is that we're going to start all these residents and fellows we're training on technology going out. They may never learn how to train their eye con- to conventional if the technology fails, right? We've got to make a conscious effort to train them without those tools so they can back themselves up in case that the technology doesn't go well. You mentioned the word information. You think we'll ever have an application of uh, augmented reality for reps that I can put on some glasses and be able to gauge your interest in the product that I'm showing you at your office? (laughs) Like reading somebody's mind? (laughs) I saw it on Terminator. It's got to work. It's kind of cool. I mean, Tesla, Neuralink, isn't that what they're working on? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're losing him. He's not interested. Yep. Well, you could kind of tell by the, how many times he's looking at you versus looking away or at his watch, right? <laughs> That's true. Well, you know, you've had all this experience with technology, and I've seen the word robot attached to you quite a bit. What have you learned from your uh, robotic experience? I've learned that you can actually make a robot very efficient. You know, it doesn't add me any time anymore. And I think one of the most interesting things I've learned about the robot is watching our fellows start adopting the technology. At the beginning of their rotation with me, they're always they're staring at the at the screen. They look like they're you know, spending a lot of time just reading the screen or trying to figure out where the information is that what they need at that time point. And then by the end of the rotation, they now know exactly what information they need when, and they start ignoring the screen because they remember the workflow. So it's been it really helps you understand what information you need at what time to make the decision to keep the surgery moving. Because it's, you can very easily start staring at the screen. You can very easily start messing around with the instruments and just 10 minutes will go by, you know, for no purpose of advancing the surgery to any further time point. If I try to do a case without the robot or without the technology, um, I'm uncomfortable because I have to second guess or stop and think about it. I'm actually very interested in something to do with decision fatigue and the amount of mental energy we spend during surgery. I think that when I do all the planning beforehand, I go into a robotic case. I just, it's really step A, B, C, D, E. I don't have to validate too much. You know, I'll double check step F and I'll double check H and then JK and we're done, right? When you're doing it manually, you stop at A, you gotta double check it and you gotta think about it. You go to B and then C, then you gotta stop, you gotta double check, are you sizing it right? There's so many validation steps during the way that you actually get more tired in a conventional surgery than you would do with technology because you can trust, verify and move on without that decision fatigue. I'm, I'm looking at ways to research this and really validate it because my mind and my mental energy spent at the end of a day doing robotic cases, I feel very refreshed and easy at the end. Then I do a couple of conventional cases and I'm like, man, that was tiring. It's because I made so many decisions that I didn't have to make with the technology. I think that's a pretty interesting thing that I'm starting to look at. You know, I was just jotting some notes down as you were talking, the technologies that can help uh, with that decision fatigue that are out there right now. We've got the patient-specific blocks. We've got robotic. We've got augmented reality coming online. we got conventional navigation that's still floating around. I know a lot of mm-hmm. doctors still use that. What do you think is going to be left standing five, ten years from now? I think it'll be a combination of almost all of it, right? PSIs may go away unless they're used for registration. Robots are going to get much smaller and more nimble, I would say. 
I like the idea that the robot is doing part of the operation for me. That there's no reason I need to ream or make sure I'm reaming correctly when the robot can just ream very easily. So I think we will have some sort of mechanical arm robot that does portions of the operation for us. And that'll be backed up by, you know, predictive analytics, kind of automatic sizing, automatic cut positions based on some inputs and, and technology. You know, we're very, we're just scratching the surface. We're taking x-rays. Right? An x-ray is one millisecond snapshot in time of that particular patient at that exact moment, you know? And then we're making decisions based on their mobility, their alignment at that moment, but that may not even be anywhere close to where they live in dire day. We're starting to work on motion tracker technology to put on a patient and see how they move throughout their whole day and then make educated decisions on implant position, balance, what they want to do. We're just scratching the surface on all this cool stuff. Well, that was a serendipitous segue, Doctor. A lot of citations out there with your name on it surrounding the hip-spine relationship. Any thoughts on where we are and the ideal technological solution to help surgeons with this issue? The biggest problem with the hip-spine relationship has been that it's too complicated. You know, all these papers out there with 10 different angles you need to measure, 15 different abbreviations, right? And then 20 different solutions to it afterwards. So where I really focused my energy is on simplifying it to almost as simple as it can be without giving up too much useful information. And then giving people an opportunity that once I see X, I do Y. Now that people are starting to understand it, and it's taken us four or five years to get to some baseline comprehension. Now we can start advancing the concepts a little bit further. Like, is the spine pre-op going to be the same as it is post-op? Right, that's what we're working on next. What's the predictive changes on what happens after a hip replacement and what effect does that have? And then, like I just said, we're basing everything on two static x-rays. Now we need to get into more dynamic modeling putting people through gate labs or using motion sensors in order to predict better uh, across how they actually interact throughout their day. So from the hip-spine relationship, we're, we're finally at a point where people understand it and recognize the value of it. We have simplified it as much as possible, and now we can start adding a little bit more complexity to it with a technology solution that maybe requires them not to have to think about it so much and kind of automate it for them. I saw an absolutely terrifying x-ray on the ortho founders meeting the other night, presentation on Cuptomize, which I thought yep. was pr pretty cool technology, but that absolutely perfect AP x-ray on the HANA table. Patient gets up, takes the first step and dislocates. And, and just that whole concept of, well, that wasn't reality laying supine on that Hannah table. When they stood up, their pelvis just rolled back. And now you realize your antiversion wasn't really right at all. Yeah. I mean, we looked at 10,000 patients in a really big database and 7% of them had a very crazy amount of pelvic tilt on their standing x-ray that they did not have on their supine x-ray. So that's a very, very sneaky group of patients. Everybody knows hip replacement is the operation of a century, incredibly low risk, excellent patient satisfaction, better than any other operation. And now you've got the case you just discussed. You know, you take one step and it's dislocating. It failed immediately, right? And this is a recurring story over and over, dislocated after two weeks, dislocated after a month. So we're getting to the point where we can identify these kinds of things before we even start. I have to say one of the papers I'm most proud of uh, that I've written, we, we looked at all the revision hip replacements that we've done. And revision, we, we classified this revision as having a redo hip operation within five years of their first hip operation, right? So you take a hip replacement and it's supposed to last 30 years or more, and now you're redoing it within five years, that's a problem. And we found that half, like 50%, of the redos were completely unnecessary had you just recognized what to do differently during the first time or done the first surgery better. 
that's crazy to think about. So that's where the passion and that's where all my energy is going is how do you pick up who's not going to do well, do something differently about it, and then save those people or hope a revision and and give them the great outcome that hip replacement patients deserve. I believe that you found that obesity can change spinopelvic alignment. Yeah, even you know the size of the belly when they sit down, the belly pushes their pelvis to roll back further. So it, 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 there's so many different factors we're trying to work through. I mean, it's been a fun ride. It's not paranoia if it's real, right? No, it's real. But you don't know it's real unless you're looking for it. It's one of those things that the eye can only see what the mind knows. I know a lot of surgeons who post dual mobility the moment they see lumbar hardware, but you did an AUKUS presentation where you found a majority of patients with a stiff spine did not have an instrumented fusion. Dual mobility has always been a very good kind of backup for high-risk patients to prevent dislocations. We're always trying to look for what is the right time to put in dual mobilities because the answer is not 100% of the patients because of some potential complications with them. So people would always say, well, I only put in dual mobilities when somebody has a spine fusion or hardware in their back. We've kind of known that hasn't been true, so we went out and looked at how many patients that had a stiff spine who basically function as if they have their spine fused, how many of them actually don't have a spine? And we found that really the majority of patients that have a stiff spine didn't have spine fusions. They were just biologically fused. They were functionally fused, behaved the exact same as a spine fusion, but without the fusion screws or anything like that. So you can't only look at the hardware in the back. You have to look at the whole picture. Tell me and my audience uh, your thoughts on patient-specific safe zones. No, patient-specific safe zones are, I, I just don't know we have to do it for every single patient, right? There are 85% of people are probably okay with some generic amount of safe zone. The other 15% are going to have risk. They may have a narrower window or they may have no safe zone at all. So the problem we have now is identifying who is in that 85% group that's okay and who is in that 15% group that's at risk. That's the hard part, and that requires right now to get at least one x-ray, a standing lateral x-ray, probably two x-rays you know, right now in 2021. But that's what we're working towards is how do we identify who needs all that advanced analysis I'm not sure it makes economic sense to do it on every single patient until we can get it done cheaply without CT scans and without a a whole host of x-rays. But that's the goal is to figure out when you need to do it. But there are definitely patients where the safe zone is incredibly small or even non-existent because of their their wacky mobility. Is there a safe zone for combined antiversion? We think so. We definitely haven't explored the femur side as much. Everybody knows combined antiversion. Yeah, the cup antiversion plus the femur or the stem antiversion. And somewhere between 30 to 45 has been the accepted range. So we're we're still trying to work that out because the femur version isn't really where you put the stem. It's how that particular patient gets up from sitting. What's their functional femoral version? And that's a that's a topic that it's very incredibly hard to measure on just x-rays or even on a CT scanner. You need to have some idea of how that femur moves throughout activities. The combined antiversion safe zone makes sense, except, you know, the female who puts her knees in when she gets up or the male who doesn't put his knees in when he gets up. That, that changes what the antiversion is dynamically. So a lot of work to be done on that side of the equation. It's good. I guess we can't have all the answers right away, right? We run out of research. The more research we do, the more questions we have. What you said about just the confounding aspect of this whole discussion, I've spent hours going through templating exercises, coming up with these angles, the SAA, and on and on and on. And I walk away from it going, if I'm not doing this every day, there's no way that I'm going to know how to do this. And then comes the magic question, is it, okay, now you've got this data, what do you do with that? Once you know what the safe zone is for that patient, you actually have to be able to execute it, right? We all know we're not that good at hitting targets without any help. There's the classic paper from 2011 out of the Mass General Group, 59% of the time they hit their targets. That's not very good. But then you use fluoroscopy and you can hit it 73% of the time. Then you use robots and you can hit it 96% of the time. 
So the way I think about this is an evolution over time of how we're doing hip replacements. 1978, we have the safe zone by Lewinick. And then in the 1990s, we start doing posterior capsule repairs for the surgery, and that helps dislocation rates. And then we introduce 36 millimeter, 40 millimeter big heads, and that increases jump distance and lowers dislocation rates. And now we've introduced a way to just do the surgery better using computer navigation or technology, and that reduces dislocation rates even further. And now we're finally introducing how to identify patients at risk and targeted safe zones with technology to assist it. It's been a journey in decreasing dislocation rates, and each one of those things I think is important because I could tell you that this patient needs to be 42-24, and there's no way in hell you're going to hit anywhere near that number without reliably, you know, without technology. So I think just by using technology, you're going to lower your dislocation rate. And then you go one step further and hit specific targets, and then you lower it even further. That's the dialogue. That's the thinking. We have to still think about how to execute the surgery, or else all this thinking about safe zones is almost nonsensical. When I'm teaching this, it's crazy to think that we're pretty good at, if you get a CT scan, if you get a couple x-rays, you can do a bunch of fancy impingement analysis. You can figure out exactly what target you need your hip to go into. But then I'm talking to people where 90% of them don't use any technology to execute what I've but we put all that energy into figuring out the patient-specific safe zone or the target for that guy, that patient. The conversation, it has really turned back to, well, this is how you do it anatomically, and this is how you make sure you're doing a good hip replacement. And all the naysayers, they're doing conventional techniques, mechanical guides. They're doing leg length and offset using rulers or how they, they're feeling the knees or the soft tissue tension. And then they're telling me that the safe zone didn't work or something like that, right? But we're... We're starting to look at, you know, how many dislocations were actually that the cup was in the wrong spot for that particular patient versus the patient would have been perfectly fine if you just did a better job at the hip replacement. You know, the patient wasn't at risk at all. You just didn't hit anywhere near where you needed to. So we're we're looking at that right now. There's so many factors. We talked about spinal deformity on the hip side. Is stiffness after knee replacement possibly a result of spinal deformity? It was an interesting paper that we wrote. People who have spine deformities, the most important thing to a human being is forward gaze, right? They have to be able to see straight because even from caveman world, that's how you protected yourself. So as you get a spine deformity, all your body is doing is compensating in order so that your head can see straight ahead when you're walking. And part of those compensatory maneuvers are first, you're going to tilt your body, your neck and your back backwards. Then you're going to posteriorly tilt your pelvis, and then you're going to bend your hips and bend your knees in order to give you that little bit more ability to see straight. So a hip flexion and knee flexion is part of the compensatory maneuvers for the spine deformity. So it really causes us to look at how do you do a knee replacement in these people when they have hip or when they have knee flexion contractures from their spine deformity, and does that affect the results? So it was an interesting paper, and we found that if you do have a spine deformity and your knee gets stiff, you had a much lower success rate on your manipulations than if you didn't. And it's all part of this compensatory process because you're protecting your forward gaze from your spinal deformity. You just blew my mind, doctor. That's just amazing stuff. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It was, it's an interesting concept, and the problem is I don't really know how to treat it, right? You got a spine deformity patient with a knee flexion contracture. You do their knee replacement, they're going to get a contracture again, you know, but that's how they're used to walking. It's like a a difficult problem. We're we're being just very aggressive in the first three months to make sure that they can get their knee all the way straight. Because if you're outside of the scar remodeling period, then they can just bend their knee and not get stuck with it bent, you know. That's kind of what I'm thinking. But everything relates to everything, right? Who knew that the spine affected the hip, affected the knee, probably affects the ankle, you know, and the spine, the head position your neck is probably affecting what's happening lower down it's all connected post-operative knee stiffness is something i've just heard about my entire career and i I see so many different angles uh, surgeons working to try to prevent it 
some that will intentionally put it loose inflection, put a little bit more slope on it than uh. the system even calls for. What are you doing intraoperatively to give yourself the best uh, chance for success? I think it has to do with three different things. One, there are particular patients who have the ability to make a ton of scar, right? Those are the true arthrofibrotics. Maybe they make keloids. Maybe you have no idea that they are and they just did it after surgery. But when you go to revise them, they've got such thick scar tissue everywhere that I'm not sure that's a solvable problem outside of some sort of medications. The second group of patients are, I think, it's actually knee instability. So a knee that's not exactly tight is getting stiff because the body's making scar to prevent it from getting stiff. Like the body's very smart and it knows if something's moving or wobbly extra, it's going to try to stiffen up that joint to keep it from wobbling extra. So putting your knee loose in flexion is going to make it unstable in flexion, is going to actually increase your risk, I think, for, for some sort of stiffness or, or even if they don't develop scar, then they're just going to be big effusions and stuff. And then the third category may just be bad pain control after surgery. Either people with poor pain tolerance or, you know, they, they didn't take their meds and they didn't get physical therapy. They just got stiff. And then you can manipulate them, break up the scar tissue, and they might get better. So I think it has to do, that's what the current thinking is, has to do with a lot of these, you know, there's some great work being done out of the Mayo Clinic. Matt Abdel has a lab on arthrofibrosis and knee stiffness. He's got an NIH grant for this kind of stuff. Um, it's a lot of cool work being done, but it's it's a tough problem, man. And it's probably one to 4% incidence of this somewhere in reality. When you extend your knees, do you like to see one or two degrees of hyper or just nice and straight? No, nice and straight. You know, doing some robotic knees, the robot will tell you how much extension you have. And I'll tell you that the eye... I might think something's full extension, but the robot's saying it's seven degrees flexed. You know, I'm not sure where our eyes are trained properly on on what exactly is full extension. So for me, I want to see if I can push on the heel with the leg kind of extended. If the knee doesn't pop up, I'm at full extension. You know, if the knee pops up any year, you're still a little bit flexed. It's, it's a balance, right? This stuff's hard. We're going, we're basing things on feel. We're basing things on robotic measurements of gaps. You know, the more technology you use, I think one millimeter laxity and extension is probably pretty good. Inflection, you want the medial side tight. The lateral side, you can accept a little laxity. I I think these are all moving targets. Surgeon taught me that trick 25 years ago. I think he called it the turtle test of just being able to push on that foot. And if the knee pops up, then you know you're still flexed. That was pretty cool. You know, as a rep, Looking across from my vantage point, it's amazing how many times I think it's straight, but it's a conical thigh, and mm-hmm. it can be a optical illusion. Well, but I think you guys actually have a better vantage point as the rep, right? You're looking from across the room. It's the same as when you're hanging a picture on your wall. You know, you stand back to get a little bit wider viewpoint. So I, if I'm confused sometimes, I will ask the rep to, to kind of weigh in you know, what they think. But you're right. Sometimes you look at this big conical thigh, you think it's in valgus, but it's straight. It's, it's really hard to do. This is all where technology helps. So many slides at orthopedic presentations I've seen start with the phrase, back to the future. And we're starting to see porous knees making the rounds again. What's, what's your opinion on this? The opinion is I'm doing more, but cautiously. Dipping the toe in the water, males with great bone. I think some of the designs we have on the market today are excellent you feel a really great stability when you're putting the component in sometimes you're doing it with a robot to make sure your bony preparation is absolutely perfect so you can maximize the bony contact so i feel very comfortable with robotic knee replacement with non-cemented technology you know with the depew robot coming out and the uh, attuned non-cemented you know that's a great it's a good combo. You got the striker, Mako robots with the triathlon knee, non-cemented. Great combo. You know, I think we need to be cautious, but I'm optimistic that we may have solved the problem. One thing I'm still waiting for, just as a market observer, and I'll, I'll give Zimmer the credit on this, that the Tia monoblock was an easy one to revise. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm waiting for someone 
to take into account in their design getting that thing back out because um, yeah, th- they can be quite a challenge. You basically have to just take a metal cutting burr, saw right through the keel, and then burr from the top to get the get it out. I mean, it's a mess. It's a mess. Or like the TM one, you could just leave it potentially, right? If you're going to do more damage to the bone, taking something out, maybe you just leave it. I mean, we've seen some of this from the the Ortho Carolina group. On the, they've done a lot of sleeves on the revision knees. If they unfortunately get infected, you know, taking out a big sleeve revision knee replacement, cutting the bone open, you're just destroying the bone. I'm not sure you're doing the patient any service instead of just doing a great debridement, you know, maybe a partial revision of one side versus the other, not destroying bone and just leaving it. So there's there's been data out of the Columbus group with Lombardi and Behrend on leaving well-fixed femur stems. You know, like taking out an AML stem, come on, you destroy the bone. There's no way to get that thing out easily. Why not just leave it? suppress the patient and do your best on a on a implant retention type of thing you know i'm sure you've seen this all the time like chiclets afterwards like what good is that younger was the first to describe the eto was that for cemented or cementless stems uh it actually was invented for taking out cemented stems oh i did not know so you can get all the cement out that's what i learned from from dr ranawat and then they started applying it to non-cemented stems out for obvious reasons but yeah it, it's definitely needed in that aml you, you go too short you're screwed you gotta go all the way down get your trefines cut the stem in half i mean it's a bear the good news is those things grew in very well the bad news is those things grew in very well <laughs> exactly god forbid they get infected you wrote a book chapter in Insaw and Scott Surgery of the Knee, Addressing Navigation and Unicondylar Knee Arthroplasty. What's your thoughts on alignment for your unis? The first thought is I think having a robot or technology has been a game changer in the unis. It's a really technically advanced procedure that you have to get it right or else they're going to fail. And there's multiple studies now that show that technology for unis has been game changing. Target wise, you can't overcorrect them into valgus. That's going to fail. I like to try to, you know, I'm, a, I'm probably on the more conservative side of my unis, maybe 10% of my practice, making sure they don't have any lateral disease, making sure they don't have any anterior knee pain. I'm shooting for basically what I would do in a knee replacement with kinematic alignment, restoring that ligament tension. So somewhere between alignments in the center of the knee to the center of the base plate, but just restoring the ligament tension. So I would call it a more ligament-guided technique, more kinematic alignment, right? which is where I've headed with a lot of my knee replacements too. I look forward to asking you about that in just a second, but before we get away from the uni, you think there's some value in matching the patient's slope on a uni? Yeah, I think you have to. I mean, unless they're part of your thinking has to be, why did this person develop their arthritis in the first place, right? Maybe if they have excessive slope or excessive varus, I'm not sure you want to recreate that exact pathological situation. But I think you have to, to some degree, match their slope for it to feel more natural. So kinematic alignment, I've heard a lot of people talk about it. I think a lot of times when people describe it to me, what they're telling me and the way Dr. Howell describes it are two different animals. And I was just wondering for our audience, uh, what does kinematic alignment mean to you? I like to think of it as a resurfacing procedure, just like a uni. There's only so much you can do with a uni because you're guided by the anatomy, by the ligaments. When you think about a knee replacement, you're trying to turn it into just a resurfacing procedure. So kinematic alignment to me means taking the same amount of bone plus cartilage that I'm going to replace in metal on the femur side, and the same thing on the tibia side. Letting the ligaments and the knee guide me to where I'm going to put it in. It doesn't make sense that we're going to change the anatomy from what it is. Like, why would I cut three or five millimeters on the lateral side and then put back nine millimeters of metal and then have to go and pie crust my ligaments or release my ligaments to make it straight again? That doesn't make sense. It makes more sense to just literally resurface the knee, recreate the anatomy, and do as minimal ligament releases as possible. And I would say that 
you know, Dr. Howell probably call me right after the years this, but, you know, any knee up to 10 or 15 degrees, once you go around the MCO and you take off the osteophytes and you, you free up the osteophytes in the back of the knee and you put it in right, almost every one of those, you're really not outside four or five degrees of alignment anyway. Right? I'm not even sure the need for these restricted boundaries on your kinematic alignment because up to 15-degree knee replacement deformities, you're, you're bringing them all back to within five degrees of, of neutral. I, I would say that's probably 95% of these cases. That's my view on kinematic alignment, like the true knee resurfacing. And just anecdotally, we're working at this prospectively as well. Like These patients are doing amazing. They're like hip replacement patients. I don't know. This, this is really game-changing for me. And I think the problem has been when they started talking about kinematic alignment, everyone focused on the tibia. They all focused on the tibia varus and worrying about it. Dr. Howell also was showing off cases that were like the severest cases that he's done, right? Look at this crazy case. I put the tibia in 10 degrees of varus, but the guy's doing just fine. And that scares some people. So I think recognizing that 95% of the time your tibia is in like four or five degrees at the most, everything is just fine. And it's no longer scary, right? It's, it's Now it's more accepted. Plus, I'll tell you, using technology to do this, and he, you know, Dr. Howell thinks you don't need technology, rightfully so. He, you just need a caliper, and he's right. But using technology to do this, if you put a tibia in three degrees of varus or four degrees, or even five degrees of varus, you look at that post-op x-ray, it is not scary at all. It looks perfectly fine. And once you start seeing that a few times where you know what you're doing on the tibia and you're comfortable, you're hitting four degrees, it no longer is scary. Well, I appreciate the feedback. That was my very next question. You know, how are your patients doing? Because I'm sure you started out doing mechanical alignment. So you have some type of benchmark to compare against. I have. I started out doing mechanical alignment. I've noticed a big difference. Like I said, I think my knee replacement patients are doing just as well as my hip replacement patients. I mean, we're seeing them back in five or six weeks after surgery and they're, they're doing stairs one-legged at, you know, reciprocating stairs walking without a lamp, getting their motion back. I'm very excited about this possibility, but also pursuing it kind of cautiously and making sure we're testing it in the biomechanics lab, looking at the stresses at the bone implant interface, uh, making sure I'm selecting you know, patients with good quality bone to do this in. The more you do, the more you want to do because they're doing so well. Knee replacement's very interesting. You know, if you do a kinematic alignment case and you do it right, the patient does amazing. If you do a kinematic alignment case or a mechanical alignment case and you you don't get it exactly perfect, they do pretty well, right? It's not a horrible operation. They do well, but I think I really think that there's a difference here. When you when you do one of these kinematic alignment cases and you get it right, you knock it out of the park. They recover so well. It, obviously, we need to study this in a more scientific fashion than my anecdotes. But I'm going. I'm along my learning curve. In this. So we've done the kinematic knee and we're going to close the knee. I got three questions for you. Closure techniques. There's a lot of cool gadgets out there to do that part of the procedure. What's on your preference card? I like capsule with barbed suture, some form of it. I think that even if it does break, it remains some of, it retains some of its uh, tension. So the capsule on the arthrotomy is not going to blow open. And then on the skin, I'm a big fan. Patients love when they have a small, thin line scar. So I use use a lot of sutures on the deeper layers. And then we close it, you know, plastic surgery-wise with a, a dermal, a subcutaneous stitch, and then some skin glue. High risk, I got a, I've got a very low threshold for using some sort of wound back negative pressure device for the wounds. I don't want to see any drainage. I want these things tight. What are you putting over your wound? Anything? Silver bandage? Aquacel? Yeah, we, we standardize. We use a, an occlusive dressing with silver in it. Uh, keep it on for a week post-op. Really keeps the visiting nurses away from it. Keeps the patients away from it. It's waterproof so they can shower. And so I'll do that or the uh, negative pressure device for a week just to get that skin perfectly closed and Yield. Any, any thoughts on this trend of vank powder and dilute? 
betadine lavage at the end of your case? Yeah, I do it on everybody. We started this at NYU, and we started it only in our high-risk groups, so revisions and rheumatoids, diabetics, things like that, and we noticed a significant decrease in infections. So now I do it on everybody. It may be the pavidoniodine part that is doing the most work. You know, people question the antibiotic stewardship of putting Vanco on every one of these. Are we selecting different bacteria to grow if we get infections? But I think it's been working very well for me, so I don't plan on changing it right now. Joint cocktails are pretty much uh, a staple on every orthopods preference card these days. Uh, what should be in it, in your opinion? Joint cocktail, we use the Ranawat cocktail, so it includes a steroid. It includes antibiotic and the Marcaine and epi, which keeps it in the tissues longer. That's what our cocktail has. Antibiotic. Yeah, depth, steroid, antibiotic, saline, the the marcaine. Which uh, which antibiotic do you use in that? Ancef, if they're not allergic. Everybody's getting a periarticular injection. I think that's very important to do. I had a great conversation with a surgeon recently about the changing landscape of surgeons with ideas interacting with industry to bring it to market. And you've got a lot of projects you're involved with on this front. Uh, to the doctors listening, any pearls, pitfalls in this arena of bringing ideas to industry and how to get that idea out there into the public sphere, so to speak? The first thing you always have to do is protect your IP, right? So follow your patents in advance or make sure you get the right NDAs uh, in place. IP protection is utmost priority if you have a new idea. And there's two different strategies. You can either develop the IP yourself, create the product, create a prototype, you know, build a company around it, and then bring it to one of the larger companies. Or you can bring your idea at the idea stage to the larger companies. And, you know, they each have their their benefits and, and downfalls. So I think really the first thing, protect protect that IP because there are a lot of smart people out there that can take what you tell them uh, and do it themselves. Mentoring is in your CV, doctor, a lot. What does that word mean to you? You know, we started off this conversation talking about the people who were important to me and got me to where I am. So I think everything in life, you're building connections, you're building people to, to, to teach you things, to get you to the next level in your career. So I want to give back to the people that I'm teaching and the people that I'm training now, just like the, the people who trained me. Well, that's why I work in an academic institution, constantly surrounded by residents, fellows, medical students who ask me questions, challenge me every day, hold me accountable to be the best I can be. So I want to give back and, and train them because somebody had to, you know, somebody, I tortured somebody for many years <laughs> coming up through this. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to give back. You do a lot of teaching. Is that just an extension of your passion for mentoring? It is. We love having medical students and residents and fellows around. It, it, it's such a stimulating environment. You're, it's every day you're, you're operating at the max of your game. You have to be because they're, they're holding you accountable. We talked about some projects that you're involved with. Is there any one or two going on right now that you're very passionate about that you'd like to to share what's going on? So I'm really passionate about our sensor project. You know, we're really getting into the realm of motion capture. I want to get to the point where a patient walks into my office, I get a certain x-ray or a gate analysis through certain sensors. I can plug it into a computer model and figure out, A, what implant they want, or need because of their bone quality or morphology, B, what implant alignments I want for a hip or a knee replacement. I'm going to take that information, execute it with a robot or computer navigation or some technology, and then see how they do, and then have that feedback into the decisions we made at the beginning. This is kind of the five-year, 10-year research plan that we have going on. and projects around every single aspect of that do some bones can some bones do cemented versus non-cemented can some patients or their bone quality do kinematic alignment versus mechanical alignment right what's the proper implant target and then having the execution tool to be able to hit that plan 
that's what we're working on. We're, we're moving on from x-rays. We're going into sensors. We're going into gait analysis. You know, can we post-operatively see who's doing well versus who isn't somebody who needs more care versus not? Um, that's the realm we're heading. More data, more data-driven decisions, more personalized medicine based on that data. It's really exciting times. I'm like, I really love thinking about this stuff and, and moving the needle forward. You know, it's been fascinating to do this job for a long time. And we always talk about the, the 80s and the 90s and just the the big steps that were happening on the implant front and kind of reached a asymptote, so to speak, the, the top of the diminishing returns curve on that design. But I think we're we're seeing the same thing starting up again, but on the technological side. So just uh, like you said, exciting times. Dr. Vigdorchik, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about your life and career. Uh, you have contributed so much to our space. And I, I look forward to seeing what the future holds for all these exciting projects that you're working on. Uh, and I think the best way I could sign off our conversation is Dasvidanya. <laughs> well, I want to say spasiba. Thank you for you know, these stimulating questions. Really gets me thinking about why I do this, where we're headed, and I'm really excited about what the future holds. I hope I've got a long time ahead of us to see how this all plays out. Indeed. A big spasiba to you, Dr. Vigdorchik, for coming on the show and sharing your life and insights with us, and a huge spasiba to my listening audience. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hear What's going on? I hope you all have an awesome week as we go into it. Let's just ponder what we've talked about today, right? The pitch of the products in your bag and what to lead with, what may need to stay in your bag until later down the road. The pitch of the people around you and how that can give us insight on how to approach them. And then lastly, the velocity of our territory, right? How fast are things moving? How slow do things move in your territory, and how can that help us in our strategic planning? Again, thank you so much. Appreciate each and every one of you. Hope you have a great week Device and great selling.